you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5, we're six weeks into our study on the Sermon on the Mount, today we make it to the halfway point, the second half of the Beatitudes, and so I want to start back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, and let's read down through verse 6. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As you have heard me say already many times during this series, and I'll continue to say, um, as I've read through these things, the thought that keeps coming to my mind is, how in the world do we do this? These, these commands seem so difficult, so impossible, apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if you think that those first are difficult, it only gets more difficult as we keep going. Look at verse 7 where we're going to be today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, now when we begin looking at this particular verse today, I think we have to begin with a warning and that is um, a warning that we don't misuse this verse. You see, we could accidentally read this verse and pick up some idea of a works-based salvation if we were not careful. Uh, we could read this verse and interpret it to mean this. I'll only receive God's mercy if I show mercy. Uh, and we could also, in turn, in turn, come up with this idea. If I quit showing mercy, then God's going to quit showing mercy to me. But the problem with that is it makes salvation based on what we do rather than what Christ did. It makes our salvation based on our works rather than on our faith. We would be saying, I must do something and continue to do that thing in order to maintain my salvation. And that would be a contradiction of what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, when we read Scripture, we must remember the idea, uh, a very basic principle, important principle, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And what I mean by that is when we come to places in Scripture where we can't understand, where it seems like it's it's contradictory or something, we need to turn to other places in Scripture where it is clear to help us to get the right idea. And so because God is never changing, because He is always the same, He's not going to, in one instance, declare salvation by works and over here declare it by grace. No, our salvation is always by grace through faith. And so I believe what Jesus is trying to say here is this, is that those who have experienced the mercy of God will in turn want to demonstrate that same mercy toward others. Because I have been forgiven, I am therefore willing and want to forgive. Because I have experienced the compassion of our Lord and Savior, 
I am in turn called to be a compassionate person. I am merciful because God has first been merciful to me. There's a reminder here that we need to catch too. And that's that when we come to these Beatitudes, they teach us who we should be as believers first, rather than what we should do. You see, a Christian is something before he does anything. We are defined by who we are before we are defined by what we do. Our behaviors do not define us as a Christian. Instead, our Christianity, our faith in Christ, ought to define our behaviors. And so because of God's love and mercy in my life, I have been so transformed and you have been so transformed that our character then begins to resemble the one who has transformed us. Because of who we are, that then defines what we do. And so therefore, if you are a child of God, a Christian, one who has experienced the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, then our identity in Christ ought to then shape us, ought to mold us, ought to change us and define who we are and who we're becoming. And so here we discover this, that because I have received God's mercy, that's who I am in Christ, one who has received the mercy of God by faith, I am then called to be a mercy giver, one who demonstrates and shows, extends mercy toward others. Now, when we study Scripture, we'll find that there are basically two main ideas connected to the word mercy. There is the idea of showing compassion and giving help to those who are suffering, and then there is the idea of forgiveness, of offering forgiveness to those who have hurt us. And so this morning, I want to take a little test. I want us to take a little test. You remember back when you were in school, um, you used to get a test in school, and I uh, used to count the number of questions on that test. I did this at least. I would count the number of questions on that test, and if it was a really short test, at first you would think, oh, great, it's a short test. And then you would think, oh, no. <laughs> Because if I miss one, that's going to count. For, if it was a 10-question test, one, one miss would give me a 90, right? If I miss three, I've got a 70. And we think, oh, no. Well, this morning, I want to give us a two-question test. Two questions. Do you show compassion and do you forgive others? First question, do you show compassion? Do you want to know if you are merciful? You need to first ask yourselves, do you show compassion. In the Greek, that word merciful means to give help to the suffering, to the miserable. And so this idea of, of, of mercy is more than what we might label as pity. You know what I mean when I say pity? You know, that feel, feeling sorry for others and saying, man, I just really, I really hate it for them. And just, just our hearts hurt. You know, sometimes we turn on the TV, for instance, and you flip through the channels and you come across those those commercials of starving children in another, another part of the world, right? And you feel pity for those children. You say, oh, it's just so, man, that's just so heartbreaking and sad. And, and your heart aches and you just think, oh, man, I just hope they get some help. And then you flip the channel, right? You have pity, but that pity doesn't often, for whatever reason, sometimes for a justified reason, sometimes for a not justified reason, doesn't move you to action, well, biblical mercy is compassion plus action. 
It is more than simply saying that we feel sorry for someone. No, biblical mercy doesn't exist until our, our, our compassion moves us to action. I heard a story a while back um, of something that took place in a little town years and years ago, back in the days when people used to ride horses for their main form of transportation. There were no cars and whatnot. And as they were going through this town one day, this one man walked up on one of his friends, and his friend's horse had been accidentally killed. And the town was beginning to gather around this man, and they were all showing this man, showing this man how sorry they felt for him. Man, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this happened. This is such an unfortunate thing. Oh, man, I'm just so sorry for you. But this one man stood forward at that moment, and he took his hat off, and he said, well, let me tell you. He said, I'm sorry, $5. How sorry are you? And he began to pass that hat around. You see, true mercy doesn't just involve words. It involves action, doing something. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it's going to be on the screen, says this. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life, our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. I think the most memorable story in Scripture involving the topic of mercy is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You likely know that story from Luke chapter 10. Um, it's the story Jesus in that situation was asked by a man, he said, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this tremendous parable, one of the most famous parables in the history of the world, even outside of Christianity, that people study this parable because of what it teaches. And so he tells this story of, 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 a, of a Jewish man who was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on that road, you might remember, he was attacked. He was beaten, he was robbed, and he was left for dead. And along comes a priest and a Levite, the religious leaders of the Israelite nation. These were the ones you would have expected to do something and to help their brother, their Jewish brother. But yet they passed by. As Jesus tells the story, they just simply walked by. Maybe they felt sorry for the guy. We don't know. Uh, maybe they... Maybe they, they they had pity for the guy. We don't know if, if we'd heard their conversations. And maybe they might have said something like this. Oh, what a poor guy. Oh, man. Someone ought to help him. But, you know, I'm, I just don't have the time right now. Maybe they said, oh, man, I, I'm in my Sunday best and I don't want to dirty up my clothes. Maybe they said, oh, man, he should have known better than to be traveling alone. What a shame. But they continued walking on. But then along comes the last person that you would expect to help that man, a Samaritan, his worldly enemy, who comes along and doesn't just feel sorry for the guy, but instead he cleans him up. He puts him on his own animal, as Jesus tells the story. He carries him to an inn, and he pays more than he really would be reasonably be expected to care for this man. 
leaves him with the man and says, I will return and I will cover all of his expenses. And what does Jesus say? In Luke chapter 10, verse 36, he says, Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the one who originally asked the question, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And so in Jesus' story, this Samaritan, he had no connection to this man. He had no real outside worldly reason to help. He was going to get nothing in return for it. Uh, There was no reward for this sacrifice. But instead, he gave. He showed mercy that was more than just a feeling, but he did everything he possibly could do in his power, even sacrificing his own money and his own time to show mercy. And Jesus said, that's what it means to be a neighbor. That's what it means to be merciful. And so here's the question. Do you show mercy toward others like that? Do you seek to sacrifice of your own time and your own well-being in order to help those who are in need? Or is your version of mercy just words? Is your version of mercy something that stops it feeling sorry instead of moving to action? Christ demands that his followers show genuine mercy, compassion, help for the suffering. And mercy requires action. So do you pass that test? Let's move on to question number two. Do you forgive others? You know, when I read the the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, there's a couple things that stand out to me. Like I mentioned a second ago, he didn't know this guy. Um, He, he, uh, I mean, this man wasn't his personal enemy. There was a lot of uh, anger, angst between Jews and Samaritans, but it wasn't like that this Jewish man in this story had done something to the Samaritan. And so he he was a perfect stranger, an absolute stranger. Um, and so in turn, we might think, you know what, I, I, I could do that. Um, I would help. I, I surely wouldn't walk by someone like that in that kind of situation. But what if, what if it had been someone who had personally harmed you? What if it had been someone who had sinned against you? Someone who had broken your trust? Someone who had slandered you? Someone who had stolen from you? You know, mercy toward a stranger is difficult, is it not? It is. It's inconvenient. It costs us something. It's, it's, it's dirty work. It's, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Um, you know, it's sacrificial. But you know what? As difficult as that is, I am convinced that mercy toward the one who has personally hurt me is far more difficult. Am I correct? Which one is easier, to help the, perf- the absolute stranger or to help the one who is your enemy? I know what I think it is. I think it's to help your enemy. I mean, the stranger, there's, there's, no, there's no resentment toward that guy. There's no hatred. There's no anger because you don't even know the person. It's a one-and-done deal. You help them, and then you move on, right? You hop back in your car, and you drive off. But what about when it's someone who's hurt you? There's resentment. There's anger. There's frustration. There's thoughts of revenge, thoughts of retaliation, Um, there's fears of being hurt again. And so I believe that this question is the more difficult one. 
our willingness to forgive in showing mercy. But biblically, mercy is connected to forgiveness. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. This is how the Lord, how God himself in speaking to Moses defines himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so God connects the dots between mercy, a merciful and gracious God, and forgiveness. We see a couple of great examples in Scripture of this kind of mercy, this kind of forgiveness. One, for instance, uh, comes over in Genesis chapter 37. We won't turn there. I'll just tell you the story. And that is the story of Joseph. Most of you, if you've grown up in church, you know the story of Joseph. He was the, Joseph. He was the younger, youngest of 12 brothers, and he was hated. He was, his brothers did not like him. They were jealous of him, and so they sold him into slavery. Now, you're talking about sibling rivalry there, right? Sometimes my boys don't get along, but at least one is not trying to sell the other one into slavery. Thank goodness. And, and so they, they threw him in a pit, and we're going to leave him for dead. But they decided when this, this band of traitors come along, they said, well, let's just do that. That way his blood won't technically be on our hands. They sold him off. Eight chapters later, Genesis chapter 45, his brothers think he's dead. They think Joseph is long gone, probably nowhere to be found. But along that, all along that time, Joseph has worked his way up, showing himself faithful to God and faithful as a servant. And he's become the second most powerful man in Egypt now. And when his brothers show up to get food because there's a famine in the land, his brothers come to town looking for food. They don't recognize him. Joseph had his brothers in his power. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. With them, If he had revenge in his heart, no one would have ever known. No one would have ever questioned. He could have done what? He could have thrown them in the pit. He could have sold them into slavery. But what does he do? Shows them mercy. Provides for them. Because he knows that what his brothers intended for evil, God meant for good. He had every right to harm them. Every earthly right to do ill, bad to them because they had done so much to him. But he lays down his rights for the sake of doing what was right in the eyes of God, forgiving his brothers and extending mercy. Such a great positive example of this. We can find a negative example of this type of thing in a parable that Jesus told over in Matthew chapter 18, the parable that we call the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's the story of a servant who was in debt to his master beyond, you know, sometimes we say we're in debt up to our eyeballs. He was beyond being in debt up to his eyeballs. He, he owed millions of dollars, 10,000 talents, which would be equivalent to millions of dollars today to his master. He went and begged to his master to please be forgiven of the debt, and the master forgave him, wiped his slate clean. But ironically, the man turns from his master, goes out and finds a man who owes him 100 denarii, which would be three months worth of wages for a minimum wage worker. And when that man begins to beg for mercy, 
The one who had received mercy doesn't show it in return. Instead, he throws the man in jail and demands that he pays. The one who received mercy refused to show mercy. And this is how the story ends. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 32, he says, Then his master summoned him, the unforgiving servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And in the next verse, Jesus ends that parable with this warning. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. I think that verse has the same idea of Matthew 5, 7. It's not give mercy so you'll receive mercy, but instead because you have received it, you ought to want to give it. John Stott said it like this. He said, nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. And Jesus, over in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, He taught us to pray what? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That we are to forgive in mercy just as Christ has forgiven us. Now, we often want to hold on to that hurt, don't we? Uh, we feel like we have the right to resent that person. We feel like we have the right to try to find a way to hurt them in return. And we might even think that we're gaining some kind of advantage because we withhold forgiveness, because we withhold mercy. But in reality, you know what we're doing? Just hurting ourselves. We're just hurting ourselves. That, that unforgiving heart toward, turns us toward bitterness. And that resentment and that anger just grows and grows and grows. And the devil wants nothing more than that in our lives. For us to become bitter, for us to become angry, for us to become resentful. Because that is so far from what it means to be Christ-like. I read a story uh, this past week of a, of a Christian lady who lost her 14-year-old daughter. Her daughter was murdered. And for, for a long time, she just had this, this frustration, this anger, this resentment uh, but eventually the Lord got to her and she released it. And this is what she said. She said, I found hatred too heavy a load to carry. Would I want the person who murdered my daughter over for Sunday dinner? No. But if I didn't forgive him, unforgiveness would kill me too. Forgiveness releases you to live. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? That, that unforgiveness in our hearts kills our spirit. It brings us down. It gives us resentment. And the devil wants nothing more than to fill our hearts with bitterness and thoughts of revenge. But when we forgive willingly, we're set free to live. We're set free to live. When we don't allow our lives to be driven by bitterness and by anger and frustration, but instead reflect the true mercy of God. Because just think about what God did for us. We were sinners. There was no way we could save ourselves. No amount of works could undo the sin we had committed. We had broken His commandments, and we had nothing to offer to God in return. And we could not repay those debts in a million lifetimes. But in our lostness, 
Christ reached down to us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And through that death, God offers his mercy, forgiving our sins and removing the guilt and the eternal consequence of our sin, releasing us from the sentence of hell and giving us eternal life in heaven. And so in, in comparison, any wrong that we have done to us pales in comparison to what we have done to God. And yet God chose to show us mercy and to give us forgiveness. And therefore we are called to forgive others. And so mercy equals forgiveness. Can you pass that test? This morning I want to, I want to close with a story I read. Um, it was a true story of a woman in Rwanda whose son had been brutally murdered. Um, she was consumed with grief and with hate and bitterness. And, and who would blame her in this world to have those kind of emotions? And she began to pray, God, reveal my son's killer. She was a believer in Jesus, but she just had so much frustration and anger and, and confusion. And one night she dreamed, she had this dream, true story, that she was going to heaven. And in that dream, uh, there was one complication. The gate to heaven was on the other side of passing through this one house. And as she walked down her street and she turned to this house, she realized that that house was the house of her son's killer. And God called her to walk through that house, to go through the rooms, the kitchen, the bedrooms, and to come out the back door before she could enter heaven. And she asked God in that dream, whose house was that? God said, it was the house of your son's killer. You see, the road to heaven passed right through the house of her enemy. And, and no joke, true story, two nights later, a knock came at her door. And when she opened the door, she saw a young man. And that young man looked at her and said, I'm the one who killed your son. He said, since that day, I've had no life, no peace. And so here I am, he said, I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I'm already dead. He said, throw me in jail. I'm already in prison. He said, torture me. I'm being tortured already. Do with me as you wish. And the woman in that moment had prayed for that day. She had prayed and prayed, God, show me the person who killed my son. And suddenly there he was right in front of her. And she didn't know what to do. But surprisingly, she found that she didn't want to kill him. She didn't want to hurt him. Because God had been doing a work on her heart. She didn't want to throw him in jail. She didn't want to torment him. And instead, the only thing she wanted was a son. And so this is what she said. I ask of you, come into my house and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes I would have made for my son. Become the son I lost. And so he did. You see, mercy givers do what God has done. Making sons and daughters out of bitter enemies. Feeding them, 
clothing them, and taking the mercy that we've received to God straight through their houses. Are you a mercy giver? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we come to a time of invitation this morning? I know these are difficult questions. These are, these are hard things to deal with. But walking with Christ and living the life He's called us to live was never meant to be easy. We were never told that it was going to be a cakewalk. And so today, if you struggle with this question of being a mercy giver, let me ask you why. Is there, is there something holding you back? Maybe you struggle in the area of showing compassion, real compassion that results in action to those you see in need. And maybe in your mind you have a ton of excuses as to why you shouldn't have to do that, but those excuses are just excuses because God's called you to obedience. Or maybe today when you think about mercy, your first thought goes to forgiveness and you think, I just can't forgive that person. Christ forgave you of so much more. I don't know what that situation might be, but Christ forgave you for so much more than whatever that person would have done to you. And so why withhold that? Because the only thing is you're, you're harming yourself more than you think you're harming that other person. And so today ought to be the day that you live as a mercy giver, as one who shows the compassion of Jesus because you have received so much that you in turn want to show so much mercy. Father God, I pray for those of us who are believers in this room, God, that we would want to be mercy givers. I know there are stumbling blocks, there are things, um, excuses that we have that keep us from from being willing to, to live that command out. But I pray we would toss those excuses aside. We would trust in you as we seek to do the difficult work that you call us to do. And Father, I pray that if there be a soul here today who has never experienced the mercy of God, they've never experienced the forgiveness of your sin, I pray that they would see that you, the loving, great, majestic God, reached down from heaven while we were still sinners and sent your son, Jesus Christ, to willingly, he willingly died on the cross to pay for our sin. And all we have to do to receive that gift is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. To pray and say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I failed you. But I believe in Jesus. That Jesus came and lived on this earth a sinless life, died on a cross, rose from the grave to defeat sin and to offer me forgiveness. And God, I just want to ask for your forgiveness for my sin today. If you will pray that prayer, I promise you that in that moment, God will forgive you. He will come into your heart in the power of the Holy Spirit and He will give you eternal life here today. Would you pray that prayer today? Jesus, I'm praying that if there be someone today who needs to do that, that they would do that. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?